Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Last time, we talked about realism and how it attempts to explain conflict and state behavior in the world. And as promised, this time we have brought in Mr. Zach Twomley of the When Diplomacy Fails podcast to help us look through different wars in history. And what we'll do is we'll see how the realist framework does or does not hold up. As implied, Zach's podcast, When Diplomacy Fails, talks about the build-up to, the breakout of, and the consequences of various conflicts in history. Uh, he's got loads of material, like 200 episodes or more, I think, uh, and it's quite addictive, so be careful. Zach also got his master's in the history of international relations at University College Dublin, so he is a bona fide expert. Zach, welcome to the show, and tell the audience a bit about what you do. Oh, guys, so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. And hello to the Reconsider listeners. It's great to be in your ears at long last. It's great to be here. Yes, my name is Zach Twomley. I am the host of When Diplomacy Fails podcast. It's my baby. It's my joy in life, including my wife, of course. And it's it's something I really, really, I really I have to say that just in case, you know. <laughs> just in case she's listening to this episode. Just in case, yes, just in case. You never know, she might pick it out, so cover on my bases. But uh, yeah, there's, there's. I mean, what's the best way to describe what it is that I do? Some people think I'm crazy, I probably am, but I spend an awfully lot of time, an awfully long length of time looking at different wars throughout history and kind of like why they happen. I'm not so interested in why this army moved to here or why this general thought that strategy would be a good idea. No, what really gets me going is like the the human agency behind different wars. Why a certain dictator thought that it was the right time to launch a war or why in some specific examples, diplomacy in that case, just for whatever reason, communication failures, mutual jealousies, petty rivalries, it just couldn't solve the issues and Peace failed. War was the result, and that's really where I come in most of the time anyway. And I've covered all sorts of wars throughout history. The First World War is kind of my anchor in the 20th century, but I've gone through the 17th century as well, done lots of Louis XIV-related stuff, lots of obscure history as well, like 30 Years' War, like Dutch history, Anglo-Dutch wars, all sorts of things. So best way really to find me, wdfpodcast.com, and go from there. Awesome, yeah. I've listened to a lot of Zach's podcast, uh, when when diplomacy fails, and they're really a lot of fun. Not not that you should enjoy war, but the, <laughs> the way that he he talks about it, the way that he 
Uh, for example, one that I really liked was your set of episodes on the Franco-Prussian War, mm. which is one of those wars that a lot of people don't really know about, but it's really, really important. I mean, you can't really understand World War One or World War Two or the 20th century without understanding how Germany's role in the center of Europe really is the question that's been being asked for hundreds of years. So it's, it's a great set of really easy and fun to listen podcast that can kind of get you caught up with a lot of historical context useful for understanding the world today. So what we did on the last episode, Zach, is we talked a little bit about realist theories. And what we were thinking is maybe we just like pick one or two wars Mm -hmm. that you uh, think are particularly interesting. And we can get in and try to both provide the historical context for these wars, but then also interpret it, interpret them through a realist lens, and just that way we can we can provide to our our listeners sort of a sense of how to look at things differently, how to reconsider the interpretation of these events. So we we had a couple in mind. Did you have any that you thought were particularly maybe would lend themselves to this type of analysis? Um, yeah, well, I as far as your list goes, I mean, it's it's fairly extensive. I mean, it, it really does to me seem seem pretty legit. But the, there's a few obscure ones I would just I just point out. I mean, from my 17th century analysis, the the English and the Dutch, for example, fought three wars in total, and each one of them really were a kind of example of one power trying to take advantage of the other. So. I mean, the 17th century was not a very nice place if you were a weaker state. So in in terms of that, in terms of one state trying to avenge itself upon another or trying to use its power against another or a kind of cynical view of the international system, the 17th century really does lend itself, I think, in a, in a big way to realist theories. Uh, I, I'd love to know more, actually, about the English-Dutch trade wars because it's something I don't know a lot about. And I, I haven't listened to your episodes on it yet, but I remember Xander saying this is obscure, but it really shaped, you know, Europe for forever, obviously. Uh, so what, uh, you know, what, what was the deal? Obviously, the English and the Dutch went to war, but I don't know anything else about it. Okay, cool. Well, I think the first thing to kind of establish is that the idea that England would declare war like in a kind of a war of basically using its supreme powers against another, that doesn't really gel with the idea we have of Britain as this kind of power that stands in with the weaker ones and like is all obsessed with the balance of power and is concerned for for the weaker's powers in Europe. And it doesn't really gel with the kind of consensus, especially if you think of British foreign policy in a kind of nutshell you think of it very much staying within the balance of power and to a large extent that's true but the reason why i found the three anglo-dutch wars in the 17th century so interesting is because they're really they're kind of anomalies in a big way i mean in the first case you had the first anglo-dutch war was 1652 to 1654 and in that case you have a very interesting political situation in britain because it's just after the civil wars in britain and a lot of turmoil and everything else and it's just before Cromwell establishes his protectorate. So the rump parliament is still in control. So there's a lot of interesting political ideas floating around. But in terms of foreign policy, it's very much geared towards the idea of, I mean, objectively speaking, these two powers shouldn't have fought because the big thing that the kind of Commonwealth of Britain wanted was a union, a political union with the Dutch Republic. 
The reason they wanted that was because they're both Protestant powers, they're both republics, so people in London thought, sweet, how can the Dutch possibly resist? They must want to have a union. And of course the Dutch were horrified because Britain was literally the pariah of Europe at this stage and they'd executed their king. I mean, who does that? So in line with this, the Dutch said, no thanks. The British said, are you serious? And essentially that's that's a short version of what happened, but there was some uh, background kind of like like little kind of miniature kind of instances where the British tried to prey upon the Dutch at sea. And there was this idea after the Thirty Years' War that Dutch were very much the supreme economic naval power of the world. And they would be so for the remainder of the 17th century. You have what's called the Dutch Golden Age in both kind of its its empire in trade and culture and art and everything. But at this stage, the Dutch, while they thought of themselves as supremely powerful and kind of untouchable, they were kind of surprisingly vulnerable to the British. And what you see happening is that the British use their massive warships to kind of destroy the Dutch smaller vessels. It doesn't go very well for the Dutch. And the Dutch are pretty much saved in in that war by Britain coming under the spell of Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell starts the Protectorate in late 1653, and by 1654 he pieces out with the Dutch on on the grounds that, well, Cromwell wants to wage war against Spain and France instead, so he can't really afford war with the Dutch. So he makes friends with the Dutch and moves on to bigger and better things. And now the Second Anglo-Dutch War and the Third Anglo-Dutch War are a bit more straightforward. What you have in those two cases, in the in the Second Anglo-Dutch War, 1665 to 67, they all seem to run for two years apiece, which is very convenient. But in 1665 to 67, England and Britain in general is under the new, very optimistic regime of Charles II, because Charles II is the son of Charles I. Charles I, of course, being executed and his family going into exile. And essentially, once Cromwell died at the end of, in 1659, I believe it was, his son Richard Cromwell just wasn't able to maintain his power base. And for a number of other reasons, the Stuarts were re-established and Charles II was the first such re-restored monarch. So he comes back to Britain with very high hopes. And before too long, uh, before too long, to cut a long story short, the British start to think to themselves, well, it went so well the first time and our regime kind of in need of, of a bit of a boost, so why don't we wage war against the Dutch again? I mean, what could possibly go wrong? And this time, they think of the war more in terms of what they could gain from it. It's not a it's not a waging a war because we're, we're disappointed with your decision not to unify with us or any such reasons like that. Instead, there's a lot of economic gain, a lot of eyes towards colonies, towards economic markets and everything else. And the British think uh, the long and short of it is, I mean, there's a few a few underlying political currents and everything else, but there's really too much background detail to get into. But long story short, the British believe that they will have the upper hand because they did in the first place. Little did they know that the Dutch had actually learned from the defeat. So in the first defeat, in the first Dutch war, they basically stockpile resources, money, timber for repairing ships and all that kind of thing. And there's no question about it. The war is going to take place at sea, so... With that in mind, the Dutch build bigger ships, they prepare themselves for a naval war across the world, and they fight a lot more uh, fiercely than the British were expecting, and basically it all goes horribly wrong for Britain, and it's kind of, 
I don't want to say satisfying because that's the wrong word, but it's basically Britain completely underestimating the hand that's dealt to it. Another kind of example of like an anomaly, something that you don't really hear about in, in British history is Britain kind of thinking, oh, this will be perfectly easy, and then kind of getting it very wrong when it declares a kind of a, a war of self-interest in Europe, so to speak. But after such high confidence, the war does not go very well. There's the famous plague in Britain uh, in 1666. There's the Great Fire of London. It all seems like Charles II's regime has been <laughs> cursed by God, to be quite honest. It all goes terribly wrong. And then to cap it all off, the Dutch burn their way up the Medway and get right into the Thames and everything. And they burn all of the British ships. They burn all the British flagships. They tow some of them away. And it's an absolute humiliation for London. And Charles II's ministers all get the blame for it individually. Some of them are exiled, a few of them are executed. But in the years that follow the Second Anglo-Dutch War, there's this call for revenge that desperately needs to happen. And this is very convenient for Charles II because he happens to be the cousin of Louis XIV, the supremely powerful king of France. Now, you can stop me at any time or jump in with any questions, guys. I'm just going on a big uh, roundabout tour of the three Anglo-Dutch Wars here. No, I was going to say, I think finishing it would be great. But if you have questions, Xander, go ahead. No, no, no. Keep keep going, Zach. Okay, cool, cool. So uh, we take it in the late 1660s. Britain and the Dutch are in an uneasy peace because the British want some kind of measure of revenge. Charles II wants a measure of revenge to prove that his regime is, in fact, all that. Whereas the Dutch are very much happy to withdraw away from silly little conflicts like that. And they basically build up their trade emporium and really increase their prestige, guys. They make themselves renowned across the world. And yet, even with all that, the Dutch Grand Pensionary, a man called Johan de Witt, who is essentially a convenient figure because he serves us as the kind of de facto prime minister of the Dutch Republic. So everything that really happens, significant things that happen, they are kind of done through the person of Johan de Witt. And he represents the the Republican regime. There's normally a kind of a, I mean, this is probably unnecessary background, background, but just to give you an idea of how kind of interrelated everyone is at this point, there's normally the House of Orange in the Dutch Republic. And they're the kind of official, unofficial, not monarchy, but certainly kind of supremely respected and held in revere kind of a family. The reason why this is the case is because in the original Dutch revolt that happened across the late 1500s, they were led by the, well, the, the first kind of significant member of the House of Orange called William the Silent. And there's a reason why he's called William the Silent. And basically it means, it, it involves when, when he was told that the Dutch were going to be kind of destroyed, he supposedly didn't say very much. And that's why he was called William the Silent. Strange nickname for him when he was, when, when he was handed that, but... In retrospect, what he ended up doing was far more impressive because he basically led the Dutch Republic in the late 1500s against the Spanish. But that's another story. Basically, the House of Orange stayed in place then up until our timeline, except almost like what happened with the House of Stuart that were sent into exile after William of Orange's father died in 1650. The House of Orange was kind of out of favor. And when that happened the kind of Republicans took over. And there's always been, even to this day in the Netherlands, there's always been a kind of, I don't want to say power struggle, but there's been a certain amount of tension between what you would call the Orangists, who are now the Monarchists, because the Netherlands is now the Kingdom of the Netherlands. But back then they were the Orangists or the Republicans. And the Republicans at this point, 
uh, were led by Johann de Witt. Now, that's all important background because the son, the son of the late William II is William III, and he will go on to be, as William of Orange, he will go on to be leading in the Glorious Revolution. He will become King William III of Britain and of the Netherlands. And he will also create the Orange Order in Northern Ireland, which is a completely other story. And it depends on how you feel about that. But that's um, what basically what, what William of Orange is important because he is in fact the nephew of Charles II of Britain. So Charles II of Britain looks at the situation in the early 1670s and thinks to himself, do you know what? If I could bring William of Orange to kind of to power in the Netherlands because his family are out of favor. If I could bring him to power after launching an invasion of the Netherlands with my cousin, the King of France, Louis XIV, then I'm sure the Dutch would capitulate and everyone would be happy and me and the French could parcel up the Netherlands together. Kind of like what he thought in 1665. Didn't go so well then. It goes a bit better this time because mainly he has the support of Louis XIV's France. You see, Louis XIV was smited in another way by the Dutch because the Dutch signed a triple alliance with some other powers and as part of that triple alliance there were some secret articles in that which basically meant that if the French didn't make peace with Spain it all gets a bit complicated here guys but bear with me if the French didn't make peace with Spain then the Dutch would declare war on them that was a few years ago but basically Louis XIV Charles II both unhappy with the Dutch both team up invade the Dutch in 1672 goes well initially because obviously the Dutch can't compete with that much force but in desperation, the Dutch flood their lands. And when that happens, I mean, what are you going to do in the flooded Netherlands? It's so close to the sea level anyway, you're kind of screwed. So when that happened, the Dutch kind of sat there in their flooded lands and said, come and take it. And the French and the English said, well, we can't. And it kind of escalated from there. The Holy Roman Emperor got involved. The Germans got involved. And at this point, the English are kind of thinking to themselves, we didn't want a continental war. We wanted an easy war with an easy victory. But they didn't get that. And what you have over the course of 1673 and 74 is the English people gradually becoming more dissatisfied with Charles II's insistence on declaring war on the Dutch, who are seen as more of the underdog. And the British at this point kind of become more familiar to us in foreign policy. They start to favor the underdog and see Louis XIV as suspicious. And this helps the Dutch immensely because in 1674, the French... Even though, they, even though the French continue the war, the English make peace with the Dutch. So this means that the third Anglo-Dutch war comes to an end. The Franco-Dutch war continues till 1678-79. But that's another story. Basically, that's what the uh, Anglo-Dutch wars are in a nutshell, all involving lots of different selfish acts and mutual self-interests. But there you go. <laughs> wow. Oof, man. I am. I'm very glad that we chose this particular conflict because I know I'm not very familiar with it. And Eric, I think you mentioned maybe this one you aren't as well. Definitely not. But um, what what this lets us do that I think would is maybe even a bit more re- revealing than something that we would be familiar with mm. is begin to peel back the layers and apply this realist perspective, yeah. this realist framework. Sure. And, and we can ask the questions as we go along because we're kind of learning too. So after hearing um, your, admittedly, I know that this is a summary. I know it's a really in-depth. There's a lot more depth to this conflict and you should check out Zach's podcast because he gets into it for all of the Anglo-Dutch wars. But 
some historical context for sort of what the bigger trends are going on at this time, I think helps you begin to apply some of this realist analysis. So for starters, to understand what's going on here uh, in Europe at this time, you need to understand that the 30 Years' War had just ended, and that had basically kept a lot of the German states very weak. It was a very devastating war. One of the powers that came out was France, which as as more of an embodiment of a modern nation state that really even existed before then. So that's important to understand France's role in this conflict. The other thing you have to kind of keep in mind is that the Spanish Armada had just been defeated about a little less than 100 years ago or close to 100 years as we get sort of uh, to the to the last Anglo-Dutch war. And the Spanish had controlled the seas and they had built up their navy initially as a response to the Ottoman Empire to get around uh, the block on the Silk Road so that they can start transporting stuff back and forth to Asia. And the British beat them in an inconclusive battle at the end of the 16th century, but then on the way back to Spain, the entire armada just sunk in a storm. So Britain had emerged really at that point as the naval power of Europe, in part because it had to be the naval power surrounded by water. And this balance of power strategy that Zach talks about is something that Defined British strategy with Europe really up until the end of World War II when it it found that the best way to protect its security was to just kind of go along as the U.S.'s junior partner. But up until that point, Britain would constantly throw its weight against the underdogs in order to maintain some balance so that a massive European war wouldn't break out again and draw them into it. Well, and also their big security imperative is because, you know, you might even ask, well, why would they be forced to be drawn into a European war? Their big security imperative is to make sure nobody can unite the continent under one rule, uh, because that would mean that the continent, ha- you know, is, is able to turn all of its guns uh, towards Britain and try to cross the sea. Whereas if Britain keeps the continent fairly divided, it means that it's almost impossible for anyone to bring war to their shores and so that's why they always get involved in trying to beat back somebody from taking it all over exactly and that's you know coincidentally essentially the u.s's grand strategy today too is preventing hegemony and it was part of the region reason why the uk was so frightened of napoleon in the end of the 18th century early 19th century because he had created an empire on the continent which let him attempt to try to invade uh, the uk wasn't successful So all of this is going on, and Britain knows that the way to secure itself from outside powers is to have the strong navy. And then all of a sudden, after Spain had kind of begun to step back a little bit on the European stage, you see this really wealthy commerce, uh, commerce economy, a country built on trade in the Netherlands emerge. And they began began to build their, their maritime power because it was required to do trade on the oceans. And all of a sudden, you're starting to see some of these deeper trends. So on the last episode, when we talked about Thucydides, when we talked about the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War, and how all these little things happened along the way, and it's they're all important to understanding how the conflict developed. Ultimately, Thucydides is saying it was the emergence of a new power that challenged the entrenched power that was one of the major causes, deeper causes of the war. And it seems to me, um, and disagree, guys, if, if you don't see eye to eye on this, that one of the things that really drove this this set of wars between Britain and and the Netherlands was the Netherlands beginning to emerge as a major naval power after Spain had receded and the UK had had dominance of the water for a while. Could I jump in there on that? 
Yeah. Cool. Um, I the reason why I'm going to disagree with you there, Xander, and I tell you why, just purely because in I mean, for the most part, as soon as the the Anglo-Dutch wars end, that is true. And in fact, up to the point really of the first Anglo-Dutch war, that was true. But the reason why I find the Anglo-Dutch wars so interesting is because they really do seem like a kind of historical anomaly. And even in so far as the individual personality of Charles II, for a long time, I was talking about the Franco-Dutch War about there as well. For the longest time, historians assumed that the supreme majesty of Louis XIV was the was the kind of the personality that pulled Charles II in. He couldn't resist the magnetic personality of Louis XIV, his supremely powerful French cousin, and that's why England declared war on the Dutch for the third time. But in actual fact, what I found is that after the humiliation from the Second Anglo-Dutch War, the simple fact was that Charles II really, really wanted revenge. And revenge in the mind of Charles II seems to have been his driving force and the the major motivating factor behind the diplomacy that he conducted with the French, basically torpedoing the old diplomatic relationship that the French and Dutch had and really tying the French to him for his own interests and... For a long time, I think people have underestimated Charles II as an actor in diplomacy. And I think this instance here, he didn't necessarily do it because the Dutch were becoming too powerful. I mean, as far as Charles II was concerned, he was born in a world where the Dutch were supremely economically powerful. I mean, they didn't really wage the war because they wanted to drive the Dutch power back. What they wanted to do was take some of it for themselves. They didn't see them as a threat so much as an opportunity, if that makes sense. Here's, here's my question about this, because I it sounds like the second war, the second Anglo-Dutch war, was a conflict of sort of racing for colonies, right? So the way I'm yeah. interpreting it is, ah, the, the Brits wanted to knock out the Dutch Navy so that they would be able to go after these colonies more or less solo without having to compete. And mm. the third one was this revenge war. And the, yeah. the question I have, I, the third one is what interests me most because um, I think that revenge can be... Like the revenge can be a motivation that comes alongside with a security motivation. Um, like they they, mm. they don't necessarily have to be mutually exclusive. And this is where I want to get everyone's thoughts because I'm thinking that you know anytime two countries go to war, there is some sort of like emotional animosity, right? So I mean, if you sure. think of the Second World War, the the Germans were like really mad that Europe had you know, imposed the Treaty of Versailles on them and, and they felt betrayed, they felt victimized, but also it was a security imperative for them because they were, you know, they're, they're on this open plain and have no natural defenses and, and so it's, there's this kind of constant pressure for them to push out. I'm, I might, what I'm, what I'm reading about the Third War is that the Brits, some of their motivation, I, I assume must have been, you know, maybe just for the MPs was that holy smokes, the Dutch were able to sail up the Thames, burning our ships. Mm-hmm. We're in a lot of trouble here. Yeah. Uh, you know, and now we're vulnerable, right? Because if we think of, if we think of Brit- the Britain's security imperative of we can't let anyone land on our shore and bring war to us, they like suddenly had that real risk. And I, I assume that must be part of why they were able to build the Navy 
back up so quickly. Yeah. Um, not that I know much about it, but if they went back and then, you know, and then took it to the Dutch again, I assume they, you know, d- were they able to build their navy back up to a point that it could rival the Dutch? Well, I mean, that is to say sort of, but the whenever the English fought the Dutch during this war, they had French help. And one of the major reasons the French and the English fell out during this war and the English made an early peace was because the English thought that the French weren't upholding their side of the naval bargain, so to speak. But you're dead right there. I don't, I don't mean to say, Xander, that you're totally, completely wrong and there's absolutely no way it was all the revenge quest for Charles II. I didn't mean to play it out like that. What I meant to say was... Was you cannot underestimate the personality of Charles II. I don't know if it's fair to say that. I mean, like to me, he seems like he was the driving force. If there was a different king on the on the throne of Britain, would Britain have declared war on the Dutch for a third time? I don't necessarily know, but I do understand what you mean there about the kind of security risk. I mean, it was a serious psychological scar to see so many Dutch ships so close to the capital and the idea that they could sink all of the sink the flagships of the royal navy like that's huge and really it's it's seen today as the worst naval disaster in the royal navy's history certainly until the first the second world war when you have the japanese sinking the i can't remember the name of those two ships that they sank but basically until really the 1940s the raid on the Medway is what it was called, but that was really the biggest kind of disaster the English had ever experienced at sea, and it really kind of shook them to their core in the late 1660s. And yes, you could definitely make an argument for them thinking, well, now that that's happened, we need to be ready to defend ourselves. But at the same time, I think they would have been just as happy to work with the Dutch and make sure that didn't happen again, or work more covertly with the French not necessarily declaring war because you what you see is the reason why I don't necessarily believe they wanted the war that the British people wanted the war or even the British politicians was because once the war begun and even two or three defeats happened the British really started to lose their enthusiasm for it and they started to blame other people for their mistakes such as the French and they started to think that the the Dutch were getting help from the emperor or they were getting help from other places or they were using unfair tactics and it's kind of it's hilarious in a way I mean it's not hilarious because people died but it's hilarious in a way to see that the the English like to think of themselves as the masters of the sea and having supremacy over the seas sovereignty over the seas was a huge English British psychological nugget and for a very long time the British would not trade with the Dutch or make peace with the Dutch until the Dutch acknowledged the British sovereignty over the seas all that really meant all that really meant, guys, was that when the Dutch were in the channel or near what were perceived to be British waters, was that the Dutch would salute the British ships. And see, the saluting is a bit iffy because what that means is that the person who's saluting, they're signaling the fact that they are inferior in those waters to the people they are saluting. And in terms of like national honor and other stuff, which I'm very big into because I did my dissertation on national honor, but in terms of that it's hugely psychological so this is a bit of a tangent but basically it's a roundabout way of saying there was a whole lot of things going on security risks could have been one of them but you can't underestimate the people like charles ii who were on the ground making everything worse for everyone else (laughs) certainly i think it's 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 ultimately impossible to to a degree to detach some of these larger historical trends from individuals because on the short in the short term certainly individual decisions more so if they are 
a a sovereign with some degree of absolute authority. I mean, absolute authority doesn't really exist in the international system, right? It only exists within a country. But some king that has some degree of absolute control over their country has a greater degree of influence over the short-term events that develop in any place. Um, So I I think to a degree you can't attach those two. It is... And it's fascinating when you come to a moment where the longer-term trends don't seem to support the decisions that that someone uh, in a position of power uh, seemed to make at a given time. My question is, after this third war, what... How did the relationship between the UK and and the Netherlands develop? What what happened after that? Because I know not too long before mm. the end of the Third Anglo-Dutch War, you know, the British began to colonize the Americas. F- the French were kind of there a little bit, but they were more interested in fur trading really than developing yeah. other types of commerce or establishing a more permanent um, colony. How did how did the Dutch fit into all this? What happened? What what were the causes of the end of those series of wars, and did the th- did the third war change in your mind what the outcome would have been if there were only two wars? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. Mintmobile. slash switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, I think, yeah, I think you really have to hand it to the third Anglo-Dutch war because that seems to have been the exclamation point where everyone kind of was like, okay, this isn't working. We're going to change what we're doing here. And really what that means is just going back to the way the British or slash England used to think of itself. Like you said, at the start of the 1600s, England faced down Spain. It would team, because Spain was the stronger power at that point, it would face down Spain in any combination of powers, be it with France, the traditional enemy, because France was weaker because it's just come out of the wars of religion. I mean, after the third Anglo-Dutch war, that was kind of seen as the last straw by many in Britain. They wanted more controls on the powers of Charles II to make war and actually in the years after this they finally put the this is actually the the third Anglo-Dutch war by the way that is the last war that a king declares independently of parliament so for that alone I think that goes to illustrate how important Charles II was but like I said earlier the changing kind of perspective of the British beginning to look they used to look at the dutch as kind of funnily enough they used to call the dutch slippery and untrustworthy because the dutch invented ice skating (laughs) so from that they used to they used to say (laughs) that they were and to this day they're still great at ice skating i remember that in the winter olympics the dutch always run away with a ton of medals because there's like ice skating you know ice skating um uh (laughs) competitions and the dutch get you know gold silver and bronze in all of them and of course, you know, mm. in hockey, 
there's like one medal you can get total. It's yeah. just nuts. Anyway, Dutch are great ice skaters. Respect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like that that is why they they basically invented it and the the english made fun of them for a while and then before long when the thames froze over you started to see english people skating along that copying the dutch it there's actually a great book written by lisa jardine i think is her name uh english uh i think she's english but a female historian obviously but she basically wrote a book called uh how england plundered holland's glory and it basically details how over the space of the 1670s particularly Britain became more and more kind of Dutchified, if you like, and they came to look at the Dutch more as friends, and they came to admire Dutch culture and everything else. And really, they started to see what, before the first Anglo-Dutch War broke out, they started to see what the Rump Parliament saw, that these two countries have a lot in common. And I think above all, what contributed to this was the fact that France just seemed so powerful especially under the person of Louis XIV, who we can't, we again, we can't underestimate this absolute king at the, at the centre of Europe, at the head of the largest unitary state, really, in Europe at the time. I mean, he had boundless resources, and even though the Franco-Dutch War didn't go the way he wanted, I mean, obviously, because it started to include other people other than the French and the Dutch, but even then, when he emerged from that conflict in 1679, there was no con- there was no question about who was the stronger power. I mean, the Dutch were never really a factor on land. Their main thing, they used to do what Carthage would really do. And I know we talk about like wars in the ancient world, but really, I mean, you could consider France to be the ancient Rome and the Dutch to be Carthage. The Dutch would rather hire German mercenaries than really, because they didn't have as big a population of the French. I mean, they had, I think, no more than about 4 million people, which even if you consider the size of the Netherlands at that stage, and 4 million may even have been a stretch. I think it was just about 3 million. But in any case, the Dutch were very much the weaker power on land. At sea, it was... Actually, at sea is a surprising story. The French had more naval vessels. They had actually got twice as much naval vessels as the French... No, the French had twice as much naval vessels as the English and Dutch both did. But because the French were split between the Mediterranean and the North Seas, they couldn't bring all of their naval power to bear. And the only times that they did, it didn't go very well, basically because the French weren't really equipped they didn't have the kind of deep water ports that they needed to have they had only one or two they had uh they had dunkirk was a big one for kind of privateers and everything else and uh there like there wasn't really the infrastructure there and louis the 14th didn't really care very much for the navy anyway and for the most part when it came time to uh, cut his cloth to suit his pocket or whatever the saying is he chose the army as did most french people you had a, you had many cases where the authorities in france were trying to chase people they used to put criminals into the galleys so that they would have an actual wow. galley force it wasn't seen as a very honorable way to serve the state the army was a far better way and it was a lot kind of was a lot more popular in general but yeah this is kind of a roundabout way of saying that the french were the most powerful state and the kind of epiphany within britain that that was the case really helped the kind of anglo-dutch relationship also of course and this leads on a decade after the event the marriage between william of orange who i mentioned and mary who was the first or no the first daughter of uh charles ii's brother james and basically William of Orange married his cousin, which wasn't that unusual back then. But because of that, he was kind of 
he was doubly in line for the, the throne of Britain. Because even though I just mentioned how related everyone was, basically the William of Orange's mother was also a, a part of the royal family. She was also kind of married in there as well. So it's it's just, it's it's crazy how related everyone is at this stage. But as a result then, William of Orange, by the end of the Franco-Dutch War, was seen as this kind of this kind of underdog, this scrappy Protestant war, warrior who would kind of take it to Louis XIV. Whereas when the British looked at their own performance, they thought, oh, do you know, we didn't do very well. And it's kind of embarrassing. So in the years that followed, the British got closer to the Dutch I th- I think that one of the things I'm I'm getting out of this is I think really important for people using the realist framework. So I'm actually really excited that because I I think Zach, if you were if you were just like an old school realist like me, <laughs> you'd be like, oh yes, like here are the geopolitical reasons that these two powers went to war. Done. Boring. Yeah. And you're like, no no no, these personalities are important, and I think you insisting that is is really important because one of the things I think you need to keep in mind when you're analyzing conflict is this. I think if a realist would say that conflict becomes very likely or perhaps even inevitable inevitable mm. for geopolitical reasons. Yeah. But how that conflict unfolds, when it unfolds, what the details look like are not driven by just, you know, vague geopolitical forces. They are driven by individual decisions that state leadership makes. So for example, you know, the fact that there were three different Anglo-Dutch wars and that they ended in the ways that they did, you know, they ended without anyone being, um, you know, without anyone just totally knocking the other out. So they kept going at it, right, is something that is due to these personalities and the fact that the English turned around so quickly and decided to go back after the Dutch in that third war is driven by, you know, it's, it's, it would be crazy to say that, that Charles's personality wasn't a big part of mm. this. And I think the other thing I'm seeing as you talk about France here that I think is really interesting is, is that your most basic, simple realist framework if you're not you know looking at some of the deeper stuff like constructivism or identity would be that look france are the big dogs they are going to keep a lid on things and 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 not let other powers fight or if there's some sort of power transition going on which is what i wrote my thesis on if there's some sort of power transition going on it would be between france and some other country but i think what you're bringing up about the navy is that you know the united kingdom is focused, sorry, not the United Kingdom. It wasn't the United Kingdom yet. Britain, Britain was focused on uh, its Navy exclusively and was able to pour all of its resources into that. Where France, you know, and, and you, you think about France's position and the constraints it faces, it has mm-hmm. to care about the North Sea, it has to care about the Mediterranean, it has to care about Spain at least a little bit, and it has to care about, you know, its Eastern border with the Holy Roman Empire, which is you know, quite wide open. Now, the good news for France and possibly the reason they were able to get involved in the low countries was that Spain was on the decline, the German states were fractured, stuff like that. And so what we start to see is how realism as a framework can show us what constraints, what constraints our country's facing and where are their security imperatives clashing that encourage them towards war? Because of course, the you know, Britain and and the Dutch 
both had this need to have access to the sea. You know, the Dutch because it was part of their trade empire, the British because it's part of their trade empire and how they defend themselves. And, you know, there is a conflict there between these imperatives. So, of course, they're prone to have conflict. But exactly how it worked, you know, and, and France had all these needs as well. And it was being pulled in a bunch of different directions rather than being focused. And so what this did is it created sort of this scaffolding around which people like Charles himself or Louis XIV were making individual decisions that eked out the details of how these wars went. Man, this is a great example. <laughs> I love these. I love these kind of spontaneous ones like this. It's so much kind of... I mean, we could talk about the First World War. It's been talked about loads of times. And to me, the First World War is like the best example of communication failure more than anything else. But I think this 17th century is just... It's rich, guys, with so many examples of all these theories being applied. And like, there's so many wars as well. Like we can get into, I could talk for hours because this is where my podcast is based at the moment. We've been stuck in the 17th century for what feels like 17 centuries, but we are, (laughs) we are, yeah, we are very much happy here. And kind of like, this is, this is our jam at the moment. So it's great to be able to talk to you guys about it. So what about the years immediately after the Franco-Dutch War. Do you want to talk about them or not so much? Well, we, we could take this a couple of different ways. We could talk a little bit about sort of how the end of the Third War influenced, or maybe just the series of wars generally influenced how Europe, Europe developed from that point on. Or we could just hop to something completely new and uh, see where that takes us. Sure. Um, I mean, what about, like, there's all sorts of, well, hmm... Um, I mean, I'd be happy to keep going with this because uh, it would take like after from like 1688 onwards, there's about 10 years of peace after the Franco-Dutch War ends. And then there is what's called the War of the League of Augsburg, which or the Nine Years War, which goes on till 1697. And then France is kind of exhausted. But by that point, everyone sees France as the kind of enemy of the peace, pretty much. So... That's kind of where things are going. And then there's the wars of Spanish succession in 1702 because the king of Spain dies and Louis wants to put his grandson on the throne and all hell breaks loose again. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to keep kind of moving forward from this point in European history because we've, we've done a lot of the context work and it's maybe more so for Americans, but it's it's easy to forget how many wars there were in Europe in these time periods. And I know that it's just not common knowledge in school for example to teach about all of them we kind of hit some of the big ones but you know once you hit the 18th century you are starting to get into the point where you know industrialization hasn't happened yet but there are this these new uh technologies used to wage war and the scale really just seems to grow exponentially i mean mid 18th century you have what you could argue is the first world war with the seven years war so talking about how we got there, and then we're starting to wade a little bit more into a historical time period that might be more familiar to some folks. I think that would be a neat way to go. So what happens after this third Anglo-Dutch war? Do you think that third war had more of an impact on what developed, or was it the series of wars combined? And what was what was the Netherlands' role after after this war? I mean, were they just completely crippled, or did they remain some deg- or retain some degree of strength? 
Well, I think the I think the most important result that came out of the Franco-Dutch War was an increasing understanding between the English and the Dutch. This kind of idea that we are so similar. We're, I mean, like Charles II wouldn't consider Louis the Fourteenth his enemy yet, and certainly the guy who takes over from Charles II, his brother James II, doesn't think of his cousin Louis as his enemy. But there starts to become this creeping realization in Britain that. Louis Fourteenth is a threat to the peace. He's the threat to, like you said, I mean, he's the strongest power on the continent. He goes against the idea of the balance of power. I mean, the British people start to see the Dutch, and it's almost because they start to see the Dutch and William of Orange in such a favorable light and start to see them as this scrappy, resilient, stubborn republic that just would not give in no matter what the circumstances. It's almost because of that, that over the 1680s, Basically, the English and the Dutch start to get drawn closer together as states. Now, they did actually sign an alliance in 1679, almost just immediately after the Franco-Dutch War ended. And I think that was really kind of the beginning. You see, Charles II is weird because even though he'd been proven wrong time and time again, and even though he knew at that point that he couldn't force his people to go to war with the Dutch for a fourth time, he kind of... It was almost a reluctant a kind of participant in the diplomacy that followed the Franco-Dutch War. But in large part, the Franco-Dutch War and the Third Anglo-Dutch War, that really was kind of the... That was the exclamation point. That was the turning point. And I think without that, without that war, without that demonstration of the Dutch resolve to kind of resist, there probably would have been another Anglo-Dutch War down the line because this Third War really kind of eliminated that segment of British opinion, which said... The Dutch might be wealthy, but they are really kind of weak. They're they're just sneaky. They're slippery, as I said. They don't want to fight. They can't fight. But the Dutch proved in that Franco-Dutch war and against the English at sea that they were very capable of taking it to their enemies and they weren't going to give in. And I think because of that, that respect starts to become ingrained as well. Not in the mind of Charles II. He still hated them, but he was willing to marry his his niece to his nephew, which I know sounds really gross, but that's basically what happened. And yeah, once that happened, then I think there's a kind of a, because of the way the succession is panning out too, I mean, Charles's brother James is a Catholic and he's a now, he's a known Catholic, there's no question about it, but he only has two daughters at this point, one of them is married to William and uh, William of Orange, so because of that, the succession seems safe, it seems almost likely that it's going to go to William of Orange. And even if it doesn't, I mean, they're also happy to wait, wait out James II's life, wait until he dies. It's only when he actually has a, a son with his second wife that things start to go belly up. And in 1680, I think it's in 1687, late 1687, that the child is born, the son. And that would be the great pretender, the guy who's known as the great pretender, James III, but who would live essentially the rest of his life in exile. But... When that happens, it's kind of a wake-up call for the those in Britain who don't believe that James II or his son would be a good... Like, they don't want a Catholic Stuart monarchy. They want a Protestant monarchy above all. So they don't necessarily invite William of Orange in, but they certainly don't... I mean, they do and they don't. There's not like this uproar of pro-Dutch sentiment and that, that James just cannot contain. I mean, it's done very covertly. William of Orange starts to raise a big army on in the Netherlands, which is interesting because up to that point, the Dutch had maintained a fairly small army, but William of Orange raises a very, very big army to the point that Louis is almost like, 
hey, uh, what are you going to do with that big army? Are you going to march it over here? And obviously I'm paraphrasing, this didn't actually happen, but William, William of Orange is kind of like, oh, you'll see, and then eventually sails over across the channel. And no one expected that. No one expected him to sail over the channel. They expected him to have some kind of input in what happened next in Britain, but they didn't expect him to just sail over and kind of seize the crown. But he does, and he seizes it fairly handily. There's no real battle except for later on in Ireland. And really once that, that happens... William is secure on the throne and the kind of then what you have is the kind of ultimate culmination of this closer feeling between the English and the Dutch because you have a, an Anglo-Dutch union until William of Orange dies in 1701 and with that then I mean you basically got the two greatest naval powers in the world tied together the maritime powers as they're called and really the English and the Dutch together they proved to be a, a good team now that's not to say that the French don't really do very well in the war that follows because Louis XIV essentially sees the so-called glorious revolution in 1688 as a declaration of war. So he declares war and then after that the War of the Grand Alliance begins also known as the Nine Years War also known as the War of the League of Augsburg. I don't know why it has three names but it does and when that happens then for the next nine years the kind of all the powers of Europe are fighting each other and they fight each other in North America as well. Not so much in India because the British presence in India was more reserved to kind of a, that of a trading post at this point. It wasn't really as kind of concrete as it would later become. But yeah, the Williamite Wars is what they're called in uh, Ireland. And I think King William's War is what it's called in North America. But that basically wages on until the 1697, at which point you had the Peace of Ryswick. And basically the French are extremely exhausted because they're obviously like vintage louis the 14th he started a war but didn't expect to have to fight it for nine whole years because he just thought his enemies would capitulate but there you go that was the second of his big wars and the kind of the end of the 1690s sees everyone be like okay let's not fight each other anymore but then everyone can't help but notice that the king of spain who is basically mentally handicapped and, and very much disabled because he was the son of his 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 father was his like his father, his mother and his father were both very closely related. I think they were something like uh, uncle and uncle and niece or something disgusting like that. But that's the Habsburgs for you. They don't mess around when it comes to inbreeding. So because of that, Charles II was another Charles II. So I tend to call him uh, Carlos II to save kind of confusion. But Carlos II dies then at the age of 40 and no one expected him to live that long at that point. Poor old Carlos II could not speak, he could not eat, he had to be fed through one of those very medieval type of tubes. And there's this kind of uh, anecdote, this is completely off topic, but it fills in some of the character of the people we're dealing with. He was so afraid of feeding time because he didn't like to be fed through this tube because it probably felt horrible that he used to try and run away and yeah, that didn't go very well. Anyway, basically what happens is when, the, uh, when Carlos II dies, he is kind of... He like when, but just before he dies, he's placed everyone in Europe in this kind of difficult position because Carlos II, or probably better yet, his advisors, because he's not really in a position to govern anything. His advisors basically say, "Well, whoever we hand the crown of Spain to, they have to keep all of Spain and its dependencies together. We don't want to hand bits of it off to everyone else because that's just not right." So this would have been fine, except for the years leading up to that Spanish decision. The British and the French and the Dutch and the Holy Roman Emperor had all made separate deals with each other that conflicted, interestingly enough, because diplomacy. <laughs> um, but they'd all made separate agreements to divide the Spanish 
uh, like dependencies and all their empire up together in the name of peace, basically, guys, because no one wanted another war. Carlos II basically says, no, I don't want to do that, and decides to leave everything to Louis XIV's grandson, Philip V, because Philip V was the second uh, grandson, whereas the firstborn grandson would have been the Dauphin. So he would have been in line for the French throne. But this second-born grandson becomes Philip V. Louis XIV basically says, well, I can either accept this massive gift that I've just been given by Carlos and obviously plunge Europe into war because no one in Europe will, will accept me going for the crown of Spain. Or I can just sit back and let look this gift horse in the mouth. Obviously, he chooses option A because let's just have another war. And the War of the Spanish Succession begins, and that really wages on until 1714. So you have another epically long war, and by that point, France is essentially destroyed. And then, as a result of that, for the next generation, up until about 1740, from 1714 to 1740, France doesn't really, like, involve itself in foreign affairs as much as it did in the past. In place of France, interestingly, you have Spain leading the charge and becoming the boogeyman of British nightmares between 1714 and 1740. And that's all the more interesting because at the head of Spain at that point was Philip V, who was Louis XIV's grandson. So the British were able to spin at that. Oh, look, it's another another child of this awful uh, monarch again has come back to haunt us and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's basically where things lead on to. In 1740, you have the... War of the Austrian Succession, which begins because Frederick the Great attacks Silesia of Austria, which is owned by Austria, and because of that, then no one can accept that, so they all go to war with Prussia. And yeah, I mean, things go very well for Prussia. Prussia ends up winning, and that's where Frederick the Great comes from. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's hard to keep track of, of everything, right? I mean, especially if you haven't if you haven't been seeped in it and like taking the time to really get to know everything. But one question that's that's outstanding for me is after so at the end of the 17th century how powerful was the dutch navy compared to like the dutch uh, maritime uh, merchant marines like the mercantile maritime you know how many boats they had doing commerce yeah i mean the 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 reason why it's a bit tricky to say definitively one way or another is because the two countries were in a union britain and the netherlands were so they essentially looked out for each other's interests so on paper you could say well altogether they have 400 and i think it was 420 wartime vessels now out of that most of them would have been converted merchantmen and the vast majority of the time the people on the ground inflated the numbers by kind of including their mate's yacht around the corner or that kind of thing to make themselves look more impressive but by and large because the dutch were kind of teamed up with the British navy there was a massive uptick in dutch economic fortunes during this period and actually the british started to get a bit annoyed because the British saw themselves as fighting the war. And interestingly, now, I don't want to overstate it, but a bit of the kind of, um, a bit of the old suspicion of the Dutch starts to creep in. in the Only in the last few years of the war with, with the French at that point, because probably because the war dragged on for so long and everyone was looking for someone to blame to explain why it had lasted so long. But this idea in London started to grow that, oh, the Dutch aren't pulling their weight. They're too busy abroad making money while we're fighting the French and it's not fair. But that that idea didn't really have long enough to kind of germinate itself because the war ended and then after that happened, it was kind of... The Union ended then as well when William of Orange died. So that ended the official union between England and the Netherlands. 
Yeah, what's interesting about the union is it it helps or it forces us to consider the identity part of realism that we talked about last time, right? So in the last show, we talked about how we generally model the international system as a series of nation states that are sort of primary actors, right? So they they act as a single unit against or with other single units that are also nation states. And here's one of those moments that almost, it seems arbitrarily, just due to one person, we have, or at least, you know, the mood of a country, mm. we have a merger, temporary merger, mind you, of two yeah. nation states that were previously at war into one nation state. And um, to some extent, this was clearly driven by these personalities, but we can ask ourselves, and, and I think this requires like more data so we can you know dig into it at some point, but one of the things realism would prompt us to ask is, was the merger a you know it's sort of mutually beneficial security thing for them like is it it was it just an alliance on steroids and then of course you mentioned that um you know that louis declared war on them because of this and i oh, you know yeah. i have to assume that this represented a, a powerful shift in power in europe where you know louis was sort of the top dog mm. and i bet that france was really happy to keep the maritime powers divided Right. And yeah. keep them fighting each other. But then suddenly, right, we might even start to see Louis as Sparta yeah. um, and the and the and Britain and, and the Dutch as Athens, just like the Peloponnesian War, where suddenly these guys are on the verge of being able to surround and isolate, you know, Western mm. Europe in a way that they weren't before. I don't know if you guys that that's my read of it. I don't know if you guys saw that as well. Yeah, it it seems like, and again, this is definitely a war that I need to learn more about, but sort of like the high-level interpretation that, that I'm kind of beginning to form from the conversation is that, you know, France basically pursued a balance of power strategy in the Thirty Years' War. Mm-hmm. I mean, with Cardinal Richelieu, who was like, he was a cardinal, but he helped shape the foreign policy of France in a way that made it conceive of itself more as a nation-state balancing against these other powers, which is why you had Catholic France allied with some other Protestant powers uh, during that time. And now they're starting to think, okay, well, yeah, there's this big maritime, there's a couple of big maritime powers rising now and they're right next to us. Keeping them divided makes sense. And at the same time, you had Great Britain worrying to a degree about, about the Dutch and their rising power. And while that might be sort of like the high, high level interpretation, maybe that explains the existence of conflict, but not necessarily the the frequency or rate of it. So the fact that there are overlapping security imperatives for the Dutch and the British seems fairly evident to me, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was completely predictable that a third war will break out would have broken out after the first two and i think the that's the other thing that's worth keeping in mind when thinking about realism or really any social science is that a higher incidence of correlation between power transition and or growing power between two countries and war is not going to hold true 100 percent of the time it just is more it's going to be more likely so and then after that, when um, the Dutch had, you know, where the British had kind of like stepped away from the continent, France saw the opportunity to just try to crush the Dutch in, in, this, in this war that dragged on after it. 
I don't know. That's that's what I'm taking away from this conversation right now. Sure. Yeah. And if it helps to kind of look at it this way as well, I remember reading in a book one time, it was in my local library before I really knew anything about this period. I read that in 1688, when the Glorious Revolution happened, that was William of Orange's attempt to kind of tie Britain to the continent, tie Britain to the continent, not just through his family, but through the mutual interests that the two countries were known to have, but to that point they'd been kept together, mainly to, kept apart rather, mainly because of the House of Stuart. And you're dead right about about what you said about the the kind of massive shift almost overnight. Louis the Fourteenth goes from thinking, "Oh, that's great," James the Second, Catholic king, very much a fan of mine and a, a friend of France. He goes from thinking that all is well, wakes up the next morning or so, and is told. Oh yeah, by the way, the product your your worst enemy, by the way, because Louis the Fourteenth and William of Orange, another reason why this era is so fascinating, these two were known to be arch enemies at this point in Europe, and suddenly Louis the Fourteenth's arch enemy sticks it to him in a way he could never have imagined by launching an invasion of Britain. I mean, who does that? Launching an invasion of Britain to take the crown and then kicking James out. Of course he's gonna see it as a declaration of war because suddenly nightmares he only really had barely imagined have suddenly come to pass and he has to face the combined might of britain which can't be anything other than resolutely tied to the dutch he has to face the combined might of the two of them and like he never even thought of doing that before in the kind of form that william of orange created sure maybe a a loose alliance but nothing ties countries together more than having the same head of state there like it's amazing really I'm really glad we covered this war and the period afterward. I had thought we might be doing like a, you know, blitz through a whole bunch of them, you know, some stuff that's more obvious that people are more familiar with. But what I'm really glad that you guys as listeners got to experience was us sitting here, you know, so Xander and I with some training in realist foreign policy thinking um, and Zach, who is a, you know, historical uh, you know, mastermind and and treasure trove, <laughs> working together to piece out what was going on with this war. Because the whole power of realism isn't just to say, okay, we know why this happened. It's been explained to us a thousand times, and and now we're just gonna, you know, now we're just gonna slap some new labels on it. But it's instead to be able to ask the question, okay, why did this happen? What was the thing, you know, driving? driving the broad strokes of what was really going on and would we have been able to predict it you know before it happened or at least say that it's somewhat likely i know xander you said that power transitions don't always cause war and they certainly don't for those who want to read my thesis i talk a little bit about what are some of the factors that make it more likely Um, and if you incorporate those factors a power transition is probably you know well over a hundred times more likely to have a war than two countries that are not having a power transition or, or maybe more, but it's still not anywhere close to 100% of the time. And so we see that realism with this conversation is something that helps us understand some of these broad strokes, but to understand the details, we still need to dive into, you know, who are the people involved and what are some of the decisions that they made? Because they may, for example, miscalculate as England did during the uh, first Anglo-Dutch war, thinking it'd be an easy win, but then it wasn't, and that caused the war to extend. So I love the complexity we got to dive in uh, into with this. I actually learned a lot. 
Yeah, it was great fun. Yeah. Th- thanks. Thanks again, Zach, for joining us. Listeners, check out When Diplomacy Fails. It's really, it's a wonderful podcast, and it is an opportunity to learn about periods in history that you probably are not familiar with that means that you're probably not familiar with how important they are and what a what a great role they played in shaping world events so check out zach twomley at when diplomacy fails uh zach thanks for joining us oh guys thank you so much i had a blast anytime i get to go on massive tangents and talk about my favorite era in history it's always a good time so thank you (laughs) thank you so much for humoring me it's great it's been a pleasure And for everyone else out there, remember, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. We'll catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.